Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. This week, we have a very special episode for you. Uh, Rajiv and Bonnie, they sit down with their kids and they talk about what it was like for them to go through their deconstruction process from their kids' perspective. Nick and Julian have some really great and amazing insights in this conversation, so I'm excited for you to hear it. But before we get into that, we just have a couple announcements. Anything that that's mentioned in this episode. If you want to know more about it, you can check the show notes at irenacast.com slash 42. And also in the show notes, if you remember last week, Casey opened the show with an announcement about him being the grand or him being nominated to be the grand marshal at the Pride Parade in Sacramento, California. And voting is still happening for that. So the last day to vote is May 27th. So make sure you get out uh, and go to the link in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 142. And you can vote for Casey as many times as you want. So show your love and support. This is an amazing opportunity. Not only that, but it's a validation of all the amazing work that Casey does specifically with LGBTQ um, students and teenagers. So uh, show your support. I think that's all we have. So without any further ado, here is this week's episode following up on last week's conversation of Family Systems. Hope you enjoy. And today we are really excited because um, Raj and I have with us our two sons, Julian Rambob and Nicola Rambob. And they're here to talk with us a little bit about what it was like for them to grow up with parents who were in the midst of a faith shift during really formative years of their lives. Um, In episode 129, I talked with Jeff about what it was like to parent during deconstruction. And in that episode, I promised this conversation. So this is a follow-up to episode 129. So thanks, you guys, for being here with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Happy to be here. So to start us off, we'd like to know a little bit more about you. So why don't you tell us, um, we'll start with Nick. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're up to these days. Well, I'm Nick. Currently, I'm just a student at Sacramento State studying English pre-credential, want to be an English teacher, very much following in my parents' footsteps before they entered ministry. Cool. Thank you. Julian, what about you? Uh, I'm currently a student at UC Davis, studying linguistics and psychology, hoping to go into speech pathology or even better, um, an academic research career. So what do you remember about faith when we were still embedded in our Seventh-day Adventist world? I remember everything. <laughs> I, I do. I mean, those, that, those are the memories that as a child, you know, thinking about childhood, I remember all that. Say more, please. Like, what do you remember? Give us some specifics. Um, I remember all the teachings. Um, I remember going to church and trying to get out of church and, you know, just the whole culture around our religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. Well, what are some things you guys used to do to get out of church? <laughs> Go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> we used to um, we used to climb the church roof with the pastor's kids, too, a lot of times. They knew all the good spots because they were there so, so much. So you guys would ask to go to the bathroom and Bonnie and I were teachers at the school, the Mm -hmm. church school. Mm -hmm. 
and you would meet up with the pastor's kids outside, like rendezvous, and then climb on the church roof during service. Yeah, yeah, and and Often. we would show them how to how all the secret you know, ways to get on the roof and the secret closets and stuff in the gym at school. At the school. Because we knew those spots. So it was an exchange. Right. (laughs) It's the duty of children in leadership. Pastors, kids, teachers, kids in the Christian environment. So what are the teachings that stand out most, either positive or negative? Um, (laughs) Well, (laughs) before circumnavigating back to the first question about what I remember about faith, um, and of course, some of the teachings and whatnot, remain with me a little bit. But what I remember more about, especially being in a more fundamentalist evangelical church, borderline sectarian, really, um, just the strong emphasis around community. And so much of me, of my faith experience was associated with like school and associated with culture and associated with a big extended family of, of your church family, really. And so I find for me, there's a lot of both positive and negative transfer that happens with that when I go into and I reflect on the teachings of what I grew up with and thinking about obviously the positive transfer of knowing how to stay in communication, be engaged in community, be present, be able to, you know, be cordial, host parties, um, just kind of social graces, I guess. But then of course, there's a lot of negative transfer associated with that too. And that a lot of sociability was centered around how godly you were or how much you adhered to teachings or how active you were in the church. You know, there was good church members because they were involved with all the functions and bad church members because they weren't. But yeah, very much just social, sociability was, has been the foundation um, for a lot of that. And I carry that a lot with me today. I find myself to be rather judgmental in a lot of situations and unpacking the baggage around that, as I think a lot of it has probably to do with what I internalized as a child growing up in that kind of community. Yeah, definitely social graces. And I'm trying to think of religious specific things that I was taught. Because, you know, you can learn social graces anywhere. It doesn't necessarily have to be at a fundamentalist church. That's true. Um, So I'm trying to think of things specific to that environment. And uh, I mean, here's the thing. When you're, when you say teaching, it's not teaching in the post fundamentalist sense of the word. Um, because the here's the mm-hmm. pill now swallow it technique that is used is, um, not at all conducive to actual developed human beings. Um, so definitely. The arrested state of development that is required to be within those communities um, that I definitely was was in as, as a child, then yeah, I mean, I, I was taught that the Bible is literal in the sense that I was told that and then took it, you know, and I don't know mm-hmm. what else, all kinds of other all, crazy stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's actually an, an interesting point. When you mentioning like the swallow the pill mentality, I would say if if anything, that's definitely been a negative transfer of the culture because so much of the teachings isn't isn't really a teaching. It's just this is a prescription of what we believe and you'll take it. And so in leaving that, I find authority to be very problematic a lot of times. Not like I was ever a troubled kid, but um, I, I find myself very reticent to accept anything anyone kind of tells me to believe. I constantly and consistently like push back 
against what I'm told either may be an opinion, even like in literature, if a teacher's like, oh, well, yada, yada, this context of this such a given literary work, it's, I don't find myself very conducive to being accepting of anything I'm necessarily told to believe, especially by adults who I probably should trust, because there's a lot of damage that's been done in that relationship. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Um, like, what was it like to have parents? And and maybe when you answer this question, describe about what ages you were too. But what was it like to have parents who were, you know, shifting, like huge shift in faith and in our own family culture and family life around spirituality and God and so on, to have all of that sort of evolving for your parents at the same time as you were trying to form your own identity and figure out who you were as people? Well, I I mean, we weren't trying to form our own identity. We had it. It, We were given it. And that was it. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, we had an identity and then our parents were not going along with that. So, yeah, I mean, that wasn't fun. Um, There were definitely... I remember having discussions like with Nick and everything about what whatever happens to mom and dad, you and I should, we you know, we need to stay true to the faith. And when we're old enough, then, you know, we won't have to worry about it and <laughs> we can go back. But for now, we just, you know, they love us. They'll take care of us, but we'll have to put on a brave face in, in, uh, religiously. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember those conversations too. There was there was a lot of frustration especially early on because I think when the transition really started, I was about 5, maybe 6, and even though we kind of had stopped going to church and stuff, which for me was a a paramount concern. I was deeply concerned with salvation as a young kid and very much like obsessed with sin. Even, you know, making you guys dump wine down the kitchen sink because it it was just straying away from everything I had been taught and had been known to believe. Um, and so it was incredibly frustrating. And then, of course, like, you know, as I grew a little bit, and I don't know how much Joanne will agree with this, but for me, it also became more frustrating as I grew and kind of begun to think a little bit more for myself, maybe around like seven or eight. Um, or eight or nine, um, when we were still in Adventist schools, but I felt my identity distancing from the Adventist identity. Um, but kind of not feeling like I was living a lie, but also feeling very much of why are we adhering to these social prescriptions, like still going to school and such, and kind of not really talking to anyone about the fact that our faith has changed. Why are we still? maneuvering the Adventist world when we're no longer Adventist. And that was, that was a very profound frustration for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so say something about like the extended family and all of this, because on both sides of our family, you know, on my side of the family, Seventh-day Adventism goes back to the very first days of Seventh-day Adventism, basically. And in, in the United States and then possibly in Ukraine before my one side of my family even immigrated to the United States. So our family has a long-standing tradition of being Seventh-day Adventist. 
So what was it like, you know, with your parents shifting? We were leaders in the church. And also you had grandparents and aunts and uncles and all within the same faith tradition. You know, I didn't really necessarily think much about the religion as a family legacy, partly because our family is so different on on the multiple sides. You know, one or some of our grandparents were converted as, you know, young people. Our our paternal grandfather, so that's very different and that's not legacy. So yeah, I never necessarily considered, oh yeah, we're we're like an old Adventist family from way back in the day. Actually, the recent converts were the more firm holders of the belief than the the old family lines, which actually I don't think is very uncommon in fundamentalist circles. Usually the families who've been in them a long time are much more, you know, more willing to get out. Um, I, I'm sure I, I, I may have. I mean, I knew it was very clear that we were an Adventist family with an Adventist legacy and that was important to our family. But I don't, I don't know if I thought about it as much in terms of the extended family as I did for our nucleus. That was the biggest concern. One of the things that was has been a big deal to you from early on was hypocrisy. That that troubled you both deeply. You know, like Nick was talking about the wine, you know, we were uh, an alcohol free home because that's part of the Seventh-day Adventist teaching. And then when we decided we were going to have some wine. Yeah, it was like really bewildering. I remember Nick <laughs> saying, he was a little kid. He was like, that's the devil's juice, pour it away. And we were so, uh, I guess, kind of taken by his his emotional response. We did. We were just like, okay, okay, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll pour it down the drain. And, but trying to, to shift that. And, and, you know, Julian, some of your comments too, sort of, and Nick kind of picking up on what you sensed was him, some hypocrisy. Uh, from us about changing what we were thinking, but not necessarily owning up to it in other spaces. So could you talk a little bit more about how that, you know, sense of hypocrisy repulses you? Absolutely. <laughs> and, <All day. laughs> and it goes from way back. Can you just talk about the arc of how hypocrisy has frustrated you and illuminated your journey? Hypocrisy has become like an essential part of my philosophical and spiritual journey. Mine, mine too. And I think it is definitely because of our upbringing. You know, the philosophies of Hannah Arendt, which she is also very adamant that hypocrisy is the true evil. And just looking historically at kind of the, the rise of, or I should say the fall of introspection in in mm -hmm. philosophy uh, with the Christianization of the world. Ultimately, the reason I struggle and have come to the conclusion that I'm not Christian, and I don't think Christianity is good for the world anymore, is because of hypocrisy. And I probably wouldn't care as much if I didn't have my <laughs> upbringing. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for... For me too. Um, I haven't necessarily come to the conclusion that Christianity might isn't for me. I still, not that I think that's an inherently bad conclusion by any means, but it's also a big part of why I'm not part of any church. I don't believe Christ believed in 
any kind of sophisticated organized religious structure to the extent that the church has become one. And so for me, that's one of my huge aversions to joining a Christian church, because I think very much when you look at the mission, it's about just doing good. It doesn't anywhere indicate that you need a house of worship to be a follower of Christ, and that really the resources that would go to a house of worship um, should go to feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, which I'm aware churches do. But, um, you know, if they never built a church in the first place and been in the park, even more so. But even like relating a little bit more, yeah, I would say I think it definitely has to do with our upbringing and just as like a, a fun tidbit, kind of this alternate universe that Join and I created called Nightopia. It's, it's really sophisticated, but there was this one city in particular, which was a meritocracy before we even had terminology to describe what that was. We created one. And, and in this city, the most severe offense was hypocrisy. And to my knowledge, I think it was the only capital offense. I think not the only capital offense, but one of the few capital offenses where if you committed it, the sentence was death. Wow. And I think like we just opened a, a little bit of a Pandora's box, I think, by bringing Nitopia into the conversation. But I think it's really fascinating because Nitopia is like this mythological world that Julian and Nick created basically during the same time as we were going through a complete transition, metamorphosis, whatever you want to call it, in our spiritual journey as parents. But then, you know, because the parents are sort of in charge of the family as a family. So yeah, say more about what it what was going on that made Nitopia an important part of maybe your processing or your making sense of things. I don't know. We had worked on it while we were still a stable Adventist family. So, yes. you know, you know, just like kids have imaginary friends and these imaginary worlds and everything, we had that too. Um, and then when transitioning out of Adventism started, it was a world that we could control and that we could say, you know what? This part of the world we live in is messed up. Let's try to eradicate it in this world and see what happens. <laughs> And that's really what we did. And people, I mean, it's important to realize that we did not have full control over Nightopia. That was the point. Um, so, you know, we put these characters in there and we do all that and then see what happens. Yeah, it was, it was very much just sort of in implementation of different laws and ideas and characters and whatnot um, and seeing, seeing how it would unfold. Yeah, I, w I wouldn't say we necessarily tried to implement kind of a supremacist control over it because we knew that would be a very false allegory and like a very false manifestation of how things really worked. And so we wanted to be, we wanted to create a reality maybe as similar, quote unquote, to the one we had in the sense that what happens when you introduce certain social constructs? What happens when you introduce certain figurehead type of characters or prophets or maybe false prophets how what is or eliminate certain sins or eliminate certain sins um yeah. what is social response to that how does society manifest it's probably what a philosophy professor would call a thought experiment yeah but as children <laughs> of course it was an it was our imaginary world and how um you know having witnessed some of this 
it, at the time it was happening. How important was that world for you, like as a as a haven? Really important. Really. I mean, for me personally, this kind of internal pseudo isolation became really, really important because, I mean, where was I going to go, you know, <laughs> to work this stuff out? Everybody, all my peers were Adventist or at least, you know, not at all actualized. So, you know, what was I going to do? And the adults I had quickly learned were all liars, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not trustworthy, including to an extent my parents. So, yeah, it really became the made up world and Nick. And that was it. I I would uh, agree a lot with that, especially in in those early years. I think I related to the world in a different way Julian did. I very much clung on to the characters, which were manifested in the copious amounts of stuffed animals that I had. And Julian very much clung to more systems and organization and countries and codes and laws. And when you look at us today, you know that that probably makes a good good amount of sense. <laughs> um, I mean, I wouldn't say beyond just really important. I think it it was essential. I couldn't imagine my life or childhood without Nitopia. Quite frankly, I don't want to. And I mean, even more so, the I mean, those stuffed animals who had very complex characters that you know were personified in this alternative realm. I still. I still have them today. And, you know, they're not even in the garage. They're in my room. Um, and they're tattered and they're worn up. But there's there's almost nothing I w- I'm not ever going to get rid of them. And, I mean, even though I don't necessarily play the games anymore or anything, I'll still always ask Joy, like, oh, wait, what was, what was this event that happened or this battle or this war if I'm working on kind of like a philosophical essay and I I need just kind of some sort of tangible association. I mean, it's just, it's essential to who I am today too. Um, there's no divorcing myself from it. And I can say that as your parents, it was a gift to us that you had that world that you would, that you were engaging all the time because it gave us information about where you were at, what you were thinking, what was really bothering you. And I think if we could go back in time and do things over, we would have paid even more attention to it. You know, we sort of just like, let it be your thing. But I think if we'd paid more attention to it, we would have probably even been more aware. Yeah. I really appreciate you both sharing that. And we've had conversations over, over the years as we've journeyed uh, through some healing and relationship mending uh, and you've shared some difficult things with us and, and, you know, we, I, I think we did as good a job as we could have to hear and, and then make some changes. Um, but looking back on it, and I say that just to offer you some freedom to say some uncomfortable things, but looking back on the growing up, like what advice would you give to parents? Like, were there things that were done pretty well? Uh, you know, you talked about being sure that you would be provided for and cared for. So I'm grateful you knew that. Uh, but what are what are some things parents who are going through this can do in in more healthy ways? Things that we we didn't know to do. I, I mean, there's plenty of things, it, and everybody's process and situation is different. So I've heard 
you know, from various parents who are raising small children in a religious environment that they're starting to question or is starting to unravel a little bit for them. Many times the reason that they stay is because of their children. You know, they want their children to grow up and, you know, have have friends and have a church community and all that stuff. And that's that's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I, I think that reasoning is insults the intelligence of your children, first of all, and is it, I, I don't know where it's from, like if it's from kind of an internal desire to stay or if it is an you know, tr- actual trying to find what's best for your children. It's not what's best for your children. I mean, so why would so this this notion where I have heard numerous parents decide to stay mm-hmm. because of the kids, yes. and you're saying no, Nick. What do you, what are what, your what, thoughts? Well, before we move to Nick, I'm just curious. Like, why do you think that it's not good for their kids to stay? Um, because they require you to be all in, and they're very explicit about that. And and family units need to be all in, otherwise there's going to be problems. And there, there's no confusion around that. So the confusion is going to be around you as parents, and why why don't you think this? And you know what's going on here? It's so much better to not trust your pastor, or you know, like not or not b- believe everything that he believes or she believes than it is your parents. And really, if you're a small child growing up in those communities, they're really catered to small children because that's the state of development that they cater to and keep people in their whole lives. It's going to be hard to compete. Nick, what are your thoughts about that? I I definitely agree. Um, I think if your decision for, for staying is for your children it's the wrong one. Children are highly adaptable, just first and foremost. We moved around a whole bunch when I was little. Sure, it was all in the church. Um, You know, we left the church when I was little and, you know, we kind of danced halfway through, which was confusing, but, you know, I was able to adapt. Children will be able to adapt. Like Joy was saying, it's so much more important that they have their parents. And so, I mean, honestly, with my experience with kids, which probably, you know, it is pretty limited to very strong qualities of kids is they're adaptable and they can smell BS. And so if you are staying for the sake of your kids and you don't sincerely believe anything, your kids will pick up on that. And because of the effectiveness of these fairly predatory evangelical churches, they will poison your kids against you. It might not be explicitly like, you know, your parents are straying away from God, but it's very much like, oh, you know, there are believers and non-believers. And that wears down very profoundly on young plastic minds. And um, yeah, they will they all distance themselves from you. You'll become the non-believer. You'll become the person that they need to save. Mm-hmm. Unless, you know, you either leave or, well, yeah, no, leave. That's that's really the only option. So if if parents are hearing this and they're going through you know, some of these decisions, they're, they're in the process of making decisions and they hear you and they're like, oh my goodness, Julian and Nick, they lived it. They're, you know, level-headed, decent human beings, young adults. We should listen to them. So if they decide, 
we're out of here. What would you say? And then uh, you're not parents yet. You both would like to be one day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is great. Grandkids will be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but like give give some advice. Like if if you had the chance now to give advice to me and mom on how to do that transition, like what would you what would you offer? Well, and to nuance it even more, your dad and I weren't completely on the same timeline timeline when it came to kind of coming to terms with the fact that we were struggling with some of these beliefs that we were taught to have. And we had our own process as a couple of trying to figure out, you know, where we were and on what page. One of us was on one page, the other one was on another page before we found some sort of congruence together. So, yeah. So, if you in your advice giving, like, what if the parenting partners aren't on the same page? Well, and you guys talk about hearing us argue in, in yeah. our bathroom <laughs> about this. Yeah, we, thought we were. We, that we definitely had to complicate up and. And close the bedroom door so we could watch our TV in peace. But it does complicate it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's important to love your family more than God, particularly a church yes. boxed version of God. I think most gods worth their salt would say that. If that's the case, then being explicit about that love, I think, can really help some of these conversations move a little quicker. If it's like, okay, well. We're going to disagree about some things, but that's not going to end, terminate any sort of love and relationship that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, that gives so much freedom and flexibility to have these conversations. And the children can be involved in that. You know, we love you more than, than these teachings and this religion, we're, or at least we're more devoted to this family, you know, than the church. That kind of rhetoric, it might be confusing. But it's really reassuring. Even as a child who was very much within the evangelical framework, that was never in question because it was explicitly told. And so I think we actually, we probably missed a lot of anxiety that other children in a similar situation would have would have felt because of that. No, I definitely agree. And I think be very just like clear and direct, I think with love that gives children so much security. Um, and I think a, a great anecdote, I actually have this anecdote. It's not just I'm pulling it out of nowhere. But you know, when you're four or five, and you learn about the Abraham and Isaac story, and then I don't know a single kid or childhood friend from my past who didn't also ask their parents if or at least wonder, or at least wonder <laughs> if um, their parents would sacrifice them if God asked them to. And it was about maybe a 50-50 split. When the kids would convene, if they'd ask their parents, 50 saying like, yes, their parents would sacrifice oh them because it's what God would want. And then the other 50%, which I was in, and the response was, no, I would never, I love you too much. Or, you know, also to, you know, my God would never, would ask, never ask that. Me. My God would never ask that because my God, you know, that's not how God views love. That That's paramount. Um, a few other things that I clung to and that helped me. I would say to create, if you stop going to church and sort of leave the church world, be it schools and church or be it just church, create some kind of ritual too. And that was something we created. We implemented this like Friday night thing for a really long time. And even though it was like we were not Adventists, there was still kind of this like 
important part of like keeping some kind of practice really helped me. And even though it wasn't necessarily spiritual, just like designated family time on Friday night, like how we would have had when we were Adventists keeping, keeping the Sabbath, lighting candles and like doing some kind of craft and like playing a game instead of like watching a movie, just creating some kind of explicit ritual, even if it's not spiritual, just create some kind of explicit ritual, I think, to fill that void. You know, we're all creatures of habit. And so if you're going to church every Sunday and then suddenly it just stops, you know, that that itself can really rock the foundation. But at least if you stop going to church, but maybe you make pancakes every Sunday and talk about how your week was, at least there's kind of something to fill that gap. Um, Absolutely. Ritualized. Do not confuse rituals with doctrines. I mean, the way I plan to raise my children, even after having gone through this, is very ritual heavy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, from the conservative friends and peers that I know, they are definitely that what they're lacking and craving is a kind of metaphysical, philosophical, spiritual freedom that they don't have with their doctrines. And they're not craving the rituals. They have that usually pretty, pretty well down. And then the progressive, you know, the, 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 my peers in a progressive community raised in progressive Christian communities are absolutely craving those rituals, these kinds of things that you do, because this is what we believe. Obviously the reasons behind specifically those rituals are up for interpretation. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can, you can kind of come to your own conclusions about that. Um, but still you do it, you know, you give to the poor, you, you know, you make a ritual out of volunteering, donating your time. If you see someone in need, stop and help them. Also just much more fun, pointless things like Christmas trees and Easter egg hunts and stuff like that. It's all important. I would say too, I, we got this a little bit, but I wish we had had a little bit more. I would say just recognize that even though you may have more baggage as parents, your children are probably equally as spiritually complex as you are. So actually taking time to engage children with your spirituality, asking them, what do you think about God? Or like, you know, dad and I, you know, whatever your family situation may be couple wise, um, just taking the time to be like, you know, my partner and I to, to your child are like wanting to leave, like, what do you think about that? Like, what do you think about God? And unpacking that, because even though like you may think, you know, your kid is five, like they're concerned with other things. It's also not not true at all, especially for kids growing up in this type of environment. I mean, all children are complex, really spiritual. So just take the time to engage their spirituality and foster them through growth too, as as you're growing as well. Don't be worried that the questions are going to scare them or frighten them because it will be a lot more damaging to to not have these conversations. Yeah, thank you. Big amen to to everything that you said. And um I it sounds like from what you both said, even though it was very disruptive at the you know in the during the time when you were young for your dad and I to leave the formative community of our upbringings. It sounds like you're glad that we did that we made that transition as a family. How would your life have been different if we'd stayed? I have no idea. I Yeah, I have no idea. Um, I, I don't spend any time or energy thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I, I've maybe thought about it a little. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really like thinking about it too much though. I mean, the only things that I can really think of is like, if I had stayed is just like, it probably wouldn't have come out. I mean, we would both probably be married or engaged by now. Neither one of us would have probably, well, I definitely would have never seeked out any kind of therapy for whatever kind of anxiety or anything I was going through. And then, you know, every, and because of that, every relationship I would have had would have just been incredibly toxic. I like to think I would have left on my own, but who knows? I yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to just make sure I have something right in my mind. And then I've got a question uh, to recap some of the stuff moving through. One is communicate to your kids that they are more important than all this other stuff. Yeah. Yes. Don't assume that they know it. Communicate. No, that. because they're not, they're being told, told that they aren't. Yeah. They're being told, like, I remember being told that you're a distraction to your parents. Like they should be loving God more than they love you. And it's really easy for parents to start, you know, get distracted by their love of their kids. Oh, and all that's that so stuff. messed up. So, I mean, they're mm -hmm. being told crap and you have to, you have to be explicit. So be explicit about your love exactly, and the yes. centrality of the family yeah. in, in this process. And then two, don't avoid ritual, like create time and space together. It's something that the kids can count on. Not only don't avoid it, do it. Do, do it. Do it. Point it, to do, do it. it. Because other stuff is being ripped away. Exactly. Yes. And so kind of replacing that to reinforce the words that family is central. We're going to be together and, and make mm -hmm. it together. Yep. Yes. So those are the two primal pieces of advice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, so the, the follow-up question, you guys were starting to talk about this a little bit, but could you expound the, your arc, your journeys of understanding around gender, roles, identities, and sexuality, given the fundamental stuff, and then now? Like, what were you taught as kids, you know, either implicitly or explicitly, and then how has that evolved over time um, um i don't remember i, I don't did you have did you ever kids. have women pastors no no were you told that women could do pretty much whatever men could do yes i was yes but i mean it came with baggage but we knew it wasn't true <laughs> yeah we knew it wasn't true <laughs> <laughs> so it was there was lip service around it that. was hypocrisy it was hypocrisy that's a great way to say it and as far as other sexualities and gender identities. I mean, we heard, I mean, maybe whispers, but I mean, we really heard nothing. I think it's very much that mentality that you find so often in the evangelical church, like out of sight, out of mind, and no need to talk about it with children unless it becomes a problem. I mean, apparently I've been recently exposed to some suspicions about me when I was a little kid doing, doing my thing about parents, I guess, saying some snide kind of comments to me behind my back to other moms or to my mom. But it's it was never really anything of importance. Like it was never anything that I concerned myself with as a kid. Because it, I mean it just it strictly wasn't talked about. Um for for a reason it wasn't talked about. I I, we, I think we left before a lot of those conversations. I I'd agree. But sort of the implicit messaging was kind of heteronormative. Well of course. Men is the head of the household, yeah. the wage earners, the women's housewives. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That kind of thing. So where are you now? Like, how would you describe your spiritual journey? And where, where do you feel like, 
I mean, I guess landed's not the right word, but you know, where you feel, do you feel settled in your spirituality or are you still in process? Anything you want to say? The process never ends. And I, I think that's, for me, that's one of the big red flags actually about the evangelical thing. If there's, there's anything that ever offers all the answers, there's a problem. And yeah, I'll, I'll settle for different like moments at a time, but then I'll hear about something else or an inconsistency, God forbid, a little bit of hypocrisy will show up in my theology and I'll be like, oh no, I, I, I have to unpack that. The process never ends. And so I would say, I would say where I am now is just really coming to peace with knowing that I don't have all the answers and knowing that I, I likely never will. I have some, which I think keep me grounded, but also that having the answers isn't the point of faith. Having faith is about having a support system while, while you think about the questions. It's not about the answers. Do you have a tradition that you identify with or a teacher that you follow? I'd say, I'd say like maybe like soft Christian, not necessarily, um, a polytheist, but I would say I probably lean on pluralism a lot. Um, I, I recognize the existence of many gods, even though I may not worship all of them and may have more of like a primary type God being in, in the Christ figure. But I definitely think, you know, there's a lot of ancient spiritualities or even present day spiritualities, or I shouldn't say that I should say religions. They're fully organized, like Hinduism, for example, where I find a lot of reassurance in those deities and to say like i mean it would be just a downright lie to say that i've never prayed or made an offering to a god of hinduism or even an ancient greek god yeah i would say and a lot more of a naturalist too i would say like if i find a deep spiritual resonance like in in nature and in the world and and i don't believe it's all limited to one god either i think that a little bit diminishing to, to myself, you know, why just have one God when there can be so many who, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a lot more exciting. Yeah. I, I think, uh, structurally speaking, I would describe myself as having kind of a, a natural theology with a splash of pragmatism in terms of like personal teachers or everything. I, you know, I really tried to be Christian. <laughs> and I tried to follow Jesus. I have come to find quite a few flaws and everything, but that's not, you know, um, that's me. I th I've come to realize that we can't, it's not really something we can choose. Our religion is not really something we can choose. And I really wasn't raised Christian. Um, mm -hmm. The society and the, the culture with which I was raised is a lot closer to kind of a, you know, a neoclassical Roman paganism. And in order to get rid of all the hypocrisy, which I have made my life's goal, <laughs> um, I have to, st I, I have come to kind of reclaim that and say, yeah, I mean, do, do I really believe in love your neighbor as you love yourself? No, not really. Um, do I really believe in, you know, a number of these teachings? Uh, no, if I did, then a lot of these creature comforts would disappear. I mean, I would say really nobody believes in that. Um, but that's, again, uh, that's my, 
disdain for hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, yeah, even that's something I still struggle with too, with the Christian identity is, um, dealing with the fact that I, I, I do have hate in my heart, um, for, for some, for some people. And, um, that that's just not reconcilable with Christianity. So, I mean, we'll see. I Not just hatred, but it's like, I, I like to, I, I want to have a nice house yeah. one day. And that's yeah. a sin. I mean, and, Jesus would be so against that. And that's I such an evil uh, thing yeah. to want, and and, I, but I yeah. want it. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, <laughs> things know? like that. And I'm okay with being a little bit better off than someone else. And, exactly, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and so even I like recognize yeah, I'm not going to turn never red ending. cheek all the time. <laughs> it's been a never-ending problem for me as well. <laughs> Before we let you guys totally loose on, <laughs> on this subject, which you can go on for, it, knowing you both pretty well, you're you're deeply ethical, moral people. And, and you do have pretty rooted spiritual identities and, and connections. And I think that's beautiful. Um, and I admire the fact that you both have been willing to give divine pursuit another chance and have found ways to to be connected in ways that are sustaining to you. Um, but ultimately, uh, with the, the trajectory of your spiritual journeys in this family, you have high integrities, you're deeply moral, you care for people, and that's – Kind of what parents hope for, I think. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for um, this conversation. And I am like so honored to be your mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. It was a lot. Really appreciate you both taking the time to to have this conversation. And I think uh, people will get a lot from it. So parents out there who are going through something similar, let us know what you think. Others, maybe you grew up and have gone through an arc like Julian and Nicola have. Uh, Engage with us. Let us know what you think. To add your voice to this particular conversation, please comment at the show notes. Look it up at arenacast.com. And on the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's arenacast.com. And on the other side of the music, we are going to play a game and get kind of silly like families do. All right, we are going to try our hand at Jesus Juke where each of us will take turns saying something, an object. Because we do this all the point. time as a family. Yeah. And uh, and then the the other three will take a turn to turn to turn it into some sort of a sermon illustration or an object lesson. Jesus juke. Bonnie's going to give us the first clue. Okay. But before that, what's funny about this is that our kids who are like not Christian or, you know, grew up so entrenched in church they now both of their parents are pastors and they have to listen to sermonizing all the time so this is going to be really fun to play together okay so you ready we're better at it though (laughs) you you probably are (laughs) the object is a coffee mug whoever wants to go first should we go clockwise all right so i'll go first this coffee mug that i'm holding in my hand is empty 
Like so many of our lives in this day and age of materialism, greed, and power mongering. And what we need to do is fill it up with a warm, enlivening liquid that is the Holy Spirit. You don't need coffee in this mug. You need the Holy Spirit. And you drink it up every morning and your day will go magically wonderfully. <laughs> nice. Amen. Who's next? Nick. Nick. My children, I say unto you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is great. This is so good. My children, I say unto you, take the Lord into your heart and then – should you do that, the coffee cup of the Spirit shall never be empty, and there shall always be enough to restoreth you and to charge you for the day. <laughs> restoreth? Restoreth you. Oh, King James <laughs> in the house. Um, Julia. I have so many. Pick one. Okay. Uh, let me tell you all a little story. Once there was a science professor... And he was teaching his class all the reason and logic why God wasn't real. <laughs> Drinking his coffee up in front of the lecture hall. And he goes, watch this, everybody. If there's an all-powerful God, then I say, hey, God, keep this coffee mug from breaking. And he drops it. But guess what, everyone? That coffee mug hit the tip of his shoe and bounced gently on the floor. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh okay, Julian wins that that's round. That's so good. For what? sure. Yeah. My, my coffee spirit. No. I don't have enough time that's, to think. That's actually pretty good. That was that's great. Pretty good. All right, my clue. Francis, our cat. He's a big, white, fluffy cat with blue eyes. Go. Nick, you're first. And one day, Jesus stood upon a hill, because when is he not? And a crowd gathered to hear what the rabbi had to say. He looked over all of them and he said, <laughs> I know I'm, I have a theme here. These are the, <laughs> these are the stories that stuck with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> he said, my children, I say unto you. <laughs> oh my God. I can't do this anymore. It's so good. He, he said, when you, are in your own metaphorical lion's den. <laughs> Take God into your heart. Love God wholly. Let the Spirit restore with you. And all the lions you have to face therein will be much like Francis, a kind, quite cuddly blue cat. Well, not blue cat, but blue-eyed cat. Um, and as long as you shouldn't move too quickly around him... <laughs> And much like that, you should approach the dark recesses of yourself with caution because there is much love that can come from within. Your metaphorical lion's den. That's good. <laughs> That's great. And don't move too quickly. Yeah. That, I mean, you took Jesus and Daniel. So that was pretty those good. Those were my two. Um, it's a lion of Judah. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, it's your turn, Julian. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. This is a really yeah. bad object. <laughs> it's so good. Nobody knows Francis, though. 
I just described him. He's a big, white, poofy cat, Francis. Yeah, but you got to know his behavior. Clean. I, I described his behavior. He's white as snow. He's sinless. Be like Francis. Now you're adding details. That would have been nice to have for my story. Do <laughs> you want to pass? Yeah. All right, Bonnie. So a long time ago, in a little town called Bethlehem, a baby was born that would one day be the savior of the world. And the first witnesses of that baby's birth were the animals who gathered around the tiny baby in the stable. There was a donkey. There was a cow. There were a few little sheep. And there was Francis the cat. Francis was so enamored with this baby that he just, he jumped into the manger with the baby Jesus and curled up beside him. So he will always be remembered throughout history as the cat who first cuddled with baby Jesus. Man, that's so bad. (laughs) That was awful. That was a children's moment. Oh my God. All right, Nick, do you have your clue for us? You have to pick who won. Oh, I won that one. Oh, my goodness. You, you picked the object. Yeah. Well, Nick won that. Right, this is. Okay, Nick, what's your object? An iron. Like a clothes iron? Yes. Oh. Clothes iron. Julian, you're first. When I was preparing my sermon today, ironing my clothes for church, because I let the spirit move me and I prepare the morning of while I dress. Amen. <laughs> Amen, Pastor. I was I was ironing out and I just watched that iron smooth all the wrinkles away. And I said, Man, I just wish there was an iron that could just smooth all the wrinkles of my life away. And then I realized there was an iron. That could smooth the wrinkles of my life away. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> nice pause. I choose them every day. I choose them every day to be my iron. Who will you choose? Amen. 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 <laughs> I love your dramatic pauses. They're so good. So good. Sounds like you've heard a few sermons. Um, You know, when God looks at... God's church. God does not want to see weak and complacent and indecisive Christians. God says to us, all of us, I would much rather you be like an iron. Either you're cold or you're hot. <laughs> the, end. the end with the spirit <laughs> okay um so when you pull your clothes out of the laundry if you've been busy and you've let them in the dryer for too long you're going to pull them out and they're going to be wrinkled we've all experienced amen this. and <clears throat> you have to make a decision Am I just going to wear wrinkled clothes and claim that as a personal style choice? Or am I going to conform to social norms and go ahead and plug in my iron and iron that shirt, those pair of pants? But most people 
assume that the iron is the important thing. And and ironing is good if you're trying to smooth out your clothes and get those wrinkles out. But really, if you want that to last, that smoothness to last, you got to spray it with some starch. Starch and, is like the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's there. It will last. A good starching, a good ironing will last for a couple of loads of laundry. So don't be fooled. Ironing alone isn't enough. You got to starch too. The Holy Spirit is just like starch. Yeah. And coffee. So Nick, who's the winner? Um, I have to give it to Join because yeah, he actually was pretty stuck good. with the object in question. <laughs> he took my illustration. That's exactly what <laughs> no, I was going to do. Good. <laughs> so I, had to, I had to throw uh, in the starch. He's good at thinking All right. on his feet. Final round. Julian. Okay, Julian. All what's right. the object? My object is a banana. If you've ever observed how a banana grows, you know that they hang from the tree in bunches and they start off really small, like little tiny green nubs. And then they grow and grow and the rain comes down and waters them and the sun shines on them. And in time, they mature and they become yellow and sweet and the fruit that we like to eat. That is how it is with us as Christians. When we begin our path, we are novices. We are green we don't, we don't know what God has for us, what God has in store for us. But in time, if we continue to follow and we are watered by the scriptures and we are enlightened by God's spirit along the way, we too can become mature and ripe and be sweet in the world. <laughs> this is so bad. Sweet You're so yellow. bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, bananas. Bananas, arguably the sweetest of the tropical fruits. <laughs> when you go to the store and buy one and you take it home, it has a shelf life. Finding the right time to eat a banana requires attention. <laughs> and if you miss it and you don't eat it in time and it begins to rot, that rotting banana can ruin everything. It smells up the trash, the kitchen, and you'll have missed your opportunity. So in, my friends, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And you must answer at the right time of ripeness. Amen. That was actually a really good one. That was, I mean, isn't this supposed to be like a joke? Yeah. No, that was, that was good. That wasn't a joke. That was a great sermon. <laughs> oh nice job. So yeah. sounds like Nick, you won. Nick's it was like go. Confucianism, Buddhism. All right. Jesus, everything. I'm going to stray away from my traditional allegory. <laughs> <laughs> One Sunday school, Miss Jones gathered up all the children around her, sitting at her feet. This was not quite nursery, but, you know, the one just after that. So we had about like five-year-olds in here, three to five-year-olds, and she had a banana in hand. And she said, kids, what am I holding? And they all said, a banana, miss. And she was like, yeah, that's right. And she asked them if any of them liked bananas. Some of them did, some of them didn't. 
And then she proceeded to ask, now what do we have to do to get to the banana? (laughs) And the kids all chimed in, well, you have to peel it to get the fruit. You have to peel it to get to the, the good part. And then she said, so would you say, children, that this skin is hiding the light within? And the children said, yes, yes, just like that. And then she said, I think so, too. She said, so remember, kids, that when you leave here today, much like a banana, you need to let your fruit shine. (laughs) (laughs) Let your fruit shine. Okay, Nick definitely wins that one. I think you won the whole game, Nick. (laughs) Nick wins that one. I think you win the whole game. Can I just say why I picked banana, though? Because it it relates to a real story. Okay. So in in seventh grade class, we had a little assignment like God is like. And we choose an object and write a little blurb, like a little, you know, a little reason why God is like that object. And then the winner, like, you know, we would present it and everything. We read it and the winner would read it at church, like the, the one that everybody thought, Oh, that's, that's the best one. And the, the guy who won his was God is like a banana. He has all the potassium you need. And that and that's that's what won. That's what. <laughs> so that, that shows you. That shows you what you know. That's Jesus juke if I've ever heard it. <laughs> oh my god, that was pretty bad. Well, this was really fun, but that will do it for us this episode. Bonnie, how can people find you on the internet? I'm at Bonnie Langrambob on Facebook, and also I'm. Um, you can find me at Parkside Community Church in Sacramento. And you can find me at Facebook.com slash Rev Raj Rambob. As for Renacast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. And while you're there, if your platform allows it, Leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. You can also fill out our listener survey at arenacast.com slash survey. The information you give us is super helpful for us as we move forward and continue to evolve the show. That's at arenacast.com survey. Till next time, peace. Peace.